chapter 4, verse 1, Paul has told us already, church, that we are looking at the Lord with an unveiled face. What does that mean, to look to the Lord with an unveiled face? He's told us already, you know what, we have this new covenant. And you know what this new covenant means? This new covenant means that there is nothing separating you now from God the Father. Now there is no veil, there is no covering from the glory of God. You have a personal relationship with God because of the finished work of Jesus. It's not dependent upon the Ten Commandments and you fulfilling the law. It's dependent now on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because He went to the cross now, because He forgave us of our sins now, we see the glory of God with an unveiled face. There is no veil covering our face now. We can see Jesus now. We have a direct view of Jesus Christ now. And that's what an unveiled face looks like. Now he tells us here in chapter 3, verse 18, as we end that chapter, he says, but we all with an unveiled face are beholding, we are learning carefully, we are gazing, we're observing, we're just staring now at the Lord here, it says. We are beholding now as in a mirror, what does a mirror do? Reflect, now after we behold, we reflect the glory of God and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is he telling us there? He's saying, you know, you are beholding the glory of the Lord. You are beholding Him. You are staring, you are gazing, you are learning carefully as you look to the Lord, as you have your focus on Jesus. And as a result of that, as a result of beholding, you start to reflect now like, like a mirror. When you behold that a mirror, you start to naturally reflect what the mirror, the focus of the mirror, you start to naturally reflect now. And as you're reflecting, you are being transformed into the image of God. Now, how does that happen? How do you behold? You behold by the Word of God, by looking and learning at the Word of God, by studying the Word of God. You behold by prayer. And you also behold by worship, just like we were singing right now. We were beholding the presence and the glory of God through now worship as well. But now he goes on to chapter 4, and we're going to study the first seven verses. And he's going to tell us how he did a ministry as he is beholding, reflecting, and being transformed. How he's doing a ministry now in the face of opposition. Now, I want you to encourage you today because today you've come and there's some encouragement in the message of today. Maybe you've come facing opposition. And you're asking the Lord, Lord, why is it that I'm facing opposition today? Why is it that what you've given me today, I feel the pressure and I feel the pain, I feel the strain, I feel the stress and the anxiety as I'm being obedient to what you've called me in this season of life. And you need some encouragement. Well, now Paul is going through suffering. He's going through it. He, he is, he's being accused. He's defending himself. He's going through suffering, physical suffering, the spiritual warfare involved. He's going from one prison to another. The message is being rejected. And here, he has an encouragement for me and for you. And what is the encouragement? How to face ministry or anything in life in the face of opposition. You know how he does it? Because his focus is on Jesus. I'm going to ask you today, where is your focus today? Is your focus on people, on success, on what they think, what, what they're going to think? Am I doing this right? Am I not doing this right? Is my life successful? Is it not? How do you measure success? 
Because here Paul is going to tell us that, that the true way of measuring success is by obedience to God. A lot of times we want to measure success by what the world looks or what they think the success looks like. That is not success. Success looks like obedience to God. And we're going to see four major points through seven verses of what Paul is filled with as his focus is on Jesus. Four major points of what it looks like when your focus is on Jesus. You want your focus to be on Jesus? What does that look like? We hear that all the time. My focus is on Jesus. Well, Paul, number one, he is filled with humility. When your focus is on Jesus, you are filled, number one, with humility. We're going to see that. When your focus is on Jesus, you're filled also, number two, with honesty, integrity. You're filled with honesty in your life because your focus is on Jesus. When your focus is on Jesus, number three, you're filled with honor for God. You're filled with honor for God. And number four, when your focus is on Jesus, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in chapter four, verse one, it says, therefore, whenever you read therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? <laughs> well, it's there for, because it's reminding us now that he's talked about the struggle, he's talked about the pain, He's talked about everything he's going through. But therefore, since the veil is taking off, since I'm looking directly at the glory of God, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, there's an encouragement there for you and for me in verse 1. Therefore, because I can have a focus on Jesus... Because the new covenant now has washed me with the blood of Christ that nothing is standing in the way between me and the Father because of Jesus, the finished work of His Son, of the Son, Jesus Christ. Because of that, we have this ministry. Now, what is the ministry that He's referring to? Well, the ministry that He's referring to today is the ministry of the new covenant. But ministry is not only something you do at church. In fact, when you gave your life to the Lord, you automatically, from that moment, you enrolled in ministry because ministry means a life of service to God. That's what ministry means. You would ask yourself, well, I'm not serving in ministry. Yes, you are. You are in full-time ministry. Sometimes the people ask me, are are you in full-time ministry yet? I said, I was in full-time ministry when I said, I accept you, Lord, as my Lord and Savior. Wash me of my sins. I I enrolled in full-time ministry that day. Because that's the day that the Lord said, my life, and we told the Lord, my life is in service, is in ministry to the Lord. But now He's going to tell us with humility now, that in spite of all this opposition, how He continues to have an enduring ministry. There's something that we need in life is endurance. You know the reason why we get so discouraged sometimes in life? Because we are lacking the endurance. But the endurance comes when your focus is on Jesus. And maybe today you need endurance because you're tired now. You're weary, you're discouraged, you're not getting the results that you've been looking for. And now you're starting to lose heart. But what does here Paul tell us in verse 1? Therefore, since we have this ministry, since God gave us this responsibility. God has given you this responsibility, whatever it is in your life. Since God has given you this ministry, this new covenant ministry, where your focus is on Jesus, when you have this responsibility to teach the Word of God as Paul was doing, this enduring ministry, as we, verse 1, have received mercy. 
See, this is amazing here. He's the foundation of ministry is mercy. I want you to remember that. Please write that down in your Bible. If you take notes, remember that the foundation of a ministry is mercy. Without the mercy of God, we would not have ministry. See, this is so humble. He is filled with humility here because Paul is saying, I don't have this ministry of the new covenant ministry that's all about the spirit of God. That's all about life and not death. That is all about the, the, the righteousness and not condemnation. That's all about the finished work of, of Jesus. I, I don't have this ministry because I've earned it. I don't have this ministry because I'm entitled to it. I don't have this ministry because I have an experience or I'm good enough or because I've met all the qualifications or because I'm sufficient or because somebody thought that I belong here. I don't have this ministry because of that. None of that. That is not why I have this ministry. I have this ministry because I've received mercy. Now let's pause there. Where would you be without the mercy of God today? My goodness. Where would you be without the mercy of God today? You know what motivates Paul here? What's motivating him is the mercy of God on his life. What is mercy, you would say? Mercy is God withholding something that you actually deserve. I want people to to treat me the way I deserve. No, you don't. (laughs) You do not want people to treat you the way you deserve because we don't deserve the best treatment. (laughs) I want the Lord to give me what I deserve. No, you don't. Trust me. (laughs) Mercy is God withholding what we deserve is judgment. Mercy is saying, I am withholding judgment and I'm forgiving you. And on top of that, he gives us grace. And he says, you know what? I'm not only withholding the judgment, I'm going to give you eternal life and a gift. And that is grace. Now he starts with saying, as we've received the mercy. Now think about your life. When you think about mercy, doesn't he give you an attitude adjustment as you're looking to the Lord and you are filled with humility and gratitude. Because where would we be today without the mercy of God? We would not be here today. We would not be sitting here or hearing the word of God today. Where would we be without the forgiveness of God? In fact, he's saying, therefore, because God gave me this in spite of me, Because God gave me this responsibility in spite of who I am. Because God gave me this. I'm not not entitled. I haven't earned it. He gave me this in spite of my sins. In spite of my error. In spite of who I am. And that motivates me to serve the Lord. If you start to think about it like that. The Lord gave you what you have in your life in spite of who we are. And He still uses our lives. Isn't that a motivation? Doesn't that draw you to want to serve Him more? Therefore, since we have received mercy, or since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, and what does it say? We do not lose heart. Now underline that church in your Bible, because it's saying because of the mercy of God, because of what He's giving me through the mercy, through forgiveness, in spite of who I am, I don't lose heart. I don't become discouraged. There's people that are discouraged here today at church. They're losing heart. They're thinking about every reason why they are not qualified to do what God's called them to do. Why they're not good enough to be right with God. Why why could God use my life? Why is it that that, that God would never use me? Starting to think that you want to quit, that that, that maybe your family is never going to be put back in order, that the marriage, that the children, that the work, financial situation, you start to lose heart. 
And here, this word where it says, do, do not lose heart, it's saying we don't become weary. We're not becoming tired. We're, we're not giving up. How easy it is to feel that you want to give up. You want to give up today because things are not going the way you thought they were going. He's saying here, I'm not discouraged regardless of the apparent failure of people when they reject the gospel. Because we're going to see in the later verses that people are rejecting the gospel. And they didn't want the gospel. However, he's still not discouraged because he's received mercy. And mercy is the motivation to ministry, is the foundation to ministry. You know what Paul is not doing? He's not looking for success in the eyes of the world. He's not looking for his approval rate in the eyes of the world because success to him looks like obedience. I heard once someone said, a pastor said recently that I was hearing a message. He's saying a lot of times the reason why people lose heart is because they blame it on burnout. You know what burnout happens? Burnout happens when your experience doesn't match your expectation and then you start to burn out. Because you're not getting the results that you wanted. Those are the results that we have a preconceived notion and idea of what we're expecting. So therefore we become tired and we become weary and we want to give up because we don't see what we want to see. You see here he's saying, I'm not losing heart regardless of the outcome. And maybe you're not in the outcome that you desire to be in today. But that's not a reason for you to lose heart. That's not a reason for you to give up. Therefore, because we receive mercy, we receive this ministry, we do not lose heart. See, that word lose heart, it's a Greek, in its Greek original context, doesn't only mean lack of courage, but it also means bad behavior or evil conduct. Just because we're tired doesn't mean that we're resorting to bad behavior or bad conduct. We do not lose heart. Why doesn't he lose heart? Because he's not focused on the great affliction. He's focused on the great mercy and the great ministry that he's received from God. Where is your focus today? Is it on the great affliction or the great now ministry and mercy that you receive from God? In Galatians chapter 6 verse 9, Paul tells the church of Galatians, And let us not grow weary, do not grow tired, do not grow now uh, impatient now. Or discouraged and want to quit while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. You know what the, a lot of the moments why we don't reap is because we lost heart before it was time for the harvest. Think about it. That harvest season is right around the corner and we lose heart right before harvest. What would take, take place? There would be no fruit. And do not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, that's in God's season. That is not in your season. The season is not up to you. The season is up to God. And in His season, you will reap. And if you don't lose heart. In those moments when we're discouraged, we can be motivated by the grace of God, by the ministry of God. And we can say, I'm not going to lose heart. No matter how great the opposition, no matter how difficult the task is, I have no regrets. I have no retreats. I'm not going back. I'm bold in what God's called me to do in spite of all this affliction. You see, in 1 Thessalon Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this, But even after we have suffered before, and we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we are bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Even in conflict, he was bold. Even in conflict, he was faithful. For exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was in deceit. But we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, 
but as God who tests the hearts. Well, isn't that some encouragement that we ought to continue in consistency and faithfulness? Not wanting to please people, but pleasing God. The easiest way for you to lose heart is you wanting to please man. When you want to please someone, you want to please yourself, you want to please man, you want to please others around you, that is the fastest way of getting discouraged. Because you start to compare results. But here Paul is entering and he's filled with humility. He's saying, I am filled with humility. I know that I've received this from God. I know where I would be without the Lord, without His mercy. Therefore, I press on. I don't lose heart. Yes, things may not be going my way, but that doesn't mean I'm not focused. Just because things are not going your way doesn't mean that you can lose focus. You can still have focus even when things don't go your way. Now in verse 2 it says, But we have renounced, here Paul, the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And he goes on, verse 4, But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 2 tells us this, that Paul is saying, We're announcing, we're rejecting dishonest methods. He's filled with honesty now. Because his focus is on Jesus, he's filled with honesty in verse 2. You see, back then they were disapproving of Paul of being an apostle. And he was defending himself and he's saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I don't do what everyone else does. I have renounced the hidden things of shame. I'm going to ask you today, have you renounced the hidden things of shame? Have you renounced those things that actually brought shame before in your life? Renounce them. Say, I have renounced those hidden things that brought shame. What kind of hidden things was he talking about? You see, a lot of apostles during that time, they would come with hidden ulterior motives and they would dilute the word of God for a selfish gain. And he's saying, I have renounced those hidden things of shame that only bring shame. I'm preaching with honesty. I'm preaching the truth. And, and, and it tells us this in verse 2. Not walking in craftiness. I don't try to trick anyone with the word of God. I don't try to allure them into my own hidden agenda or, or for the people to serve my own purpose. As he's saying, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. When I use the word of God, I don't use the word of God to my advantage. I, I have renounced that method. I've renounced that, that program. I've uh, renounced that style. I don't, I don't use what others use, the Word of God, or peddling the Word of God for making money for selfish gain or for my advantage. You see, there are times that we can use even those most pure blessings that God has given us to our advantage for a selfish shame. And Paul is saying, I'm not like everyone else. I, I'm not in deceitfulness. You know what the word deceitfulness means uh, of the word of God? Or I don't handle the word of God in deceitfulness. He's saying, I am not diluting or I am not adulterating the word of God. What happens when you think of uh, adulterating? Of using it for your selfish gain. Adulterating the word of God. I'm not diluting it. I'm not adulterating the word of God for dishonest gain. You see, back then, a lot of people would adulter, adulterate things for selfish gain. There would be a lot of knockoffs of different things being sold in the markets. When you think about the soap that was sold, they would water down the soap sometimes. They would sell wine and they would water down the wine where the wine was, was watered down and didn't have the taste that it needed to have culturally of that time. Some of, some of the times, even the pottery. 
And they would sell pottery and actually would have all these cracks in the pottery and they would just put, uh, you know, uh, they would cover that, that, uh, the piece of pottery and, and when it would come in and they would, someone would buy it and they would put it close to a fire, that wax that they had covered the cracks with would, would start to melt and you would, it, it would expose the cracks in that pottery. It was a knockoff. Do you see how that happens? You see, it wasn't legitimate. It wasn't real. It was fake. You can tell that there was something dishonest about what was taking place. And here what Paul is saying, and this is not a knockoff. There's no cracks. There's no hidden agenda. I haven't covered this with wax that when it's before the light that it is exposed that this is for me. You see, when his focus is on Jesus, you see that he is filled with honesty, with integrity. And he tells us this in verse 2. But by the manifestation of the truth, it is so obvious that I'm speaking the truth. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what he's saying here? I tell the truth before God. Every man's conscience... Everyone that is honest knows in their mind that this is the true evident gospel. I don't try to sell it. I don't try to entertain someone to try to come and hear me. I don't try to promote it by a method or a program and disguise the word of God. I am confident in what I do because I'm teaching the truth. You know how much confident you can be when you're living a life in the word of God? You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to try to hide anything. You don't have, there's nothing that, that you have to argue against. And here Paul is saying, there is no hidden cracks here. There's no wax cover gospel. There's no adulterating. There's no watering down now of the gospel. This is the real deal. And I'm not using methods, entertainment, and program, or selfish ambition to get you to come to hear the word of God. It is the word of God. It is Jesus. It is nothing more. It is nothing less. It is nothing else. It is Jesus. And that's exactly what he wants to tell them. Now he tells them, I'm teaching the truth, but even, verse 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Well, I'm teaching the truth, but even, the, even then, people are rejecting the truth because the gospel is veiled for them. What does that word veiled mean? It means it's hidden. Their, their eyes are blinded. Their minds are blinded to the truth. Do you remember when maybe we weren't walking with the Lord or you personally weren't walking with the Lord? And what happened when people spoke to you about the truth? You didn't want to hear it. That, that what, you didn't want nothing to do with it. The, the, the realization or your awareness of God, you thought, I don't need, I don't need God. I, 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 your eyes were blinded. They were covered now. And it tells us this in verse 3. It says, but even if the gospel is veiled now, even if the good news is hidden now from those that we're preaching, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why is it veiled to those that are perishing? Because it's hidden from their eyes. It's hidden. The message is hidden. That's why we have to pray, Lord, open their eyes that they may see you, Jesus. Open their eyes that they would understand that they need you, Lord. And how is it blinded? You know what the, what the enemy uses to blind people from the gospel? He uses deception. He uses lies from the world. And the enemy will lie to you to create a veil on your mind now. It starts in your mind so that you do not believe that you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in verse here, 3, 4, it says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Where is the battlefield that we ought to be praying for? The, the, the spiritual battlefield or the, the, the battlegrounds that we come in contact with or we are present with every single day is the battlefield or the battleground of the mind. 
Because that's where you make your decisions and choices on whether you're going to serve God or serve man or serve yourself. The enemy has come and in the mind has lied to them, he's saying here, has lied to them and blinded their minds who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. They don't believe and if they did believe, their minds would not be blinded now and the gospel would be able to shine, the good news would be able to shine directly on their lives. Now what he says, who is it that's blinding? It's the enemy, the God of this age. When he wrote to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians, he said, the prince of the power of the air used to serve the prince of the power of the air. Satan is the god of this culture and of this age, of this world, of the sin, and where we look around and he is blinding constantly the minds of people to deception instead of to the truth. What's the opposite of deception? What's the opposite of the lie? The truth. And what does the enemy want to do? Instead of giving you the truth, he wants to give you a lie and, and, and wants you to believe in that lie. You know, believe in the life for what reason? Verse 4, so that the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ, so that that light would not shine in their hearts and they would be transformed into the image of God as it shines on them. You see, when the image of God shines on you, you become transformed to His image. When His glory is shining on you. The New Living Translation says this, saying, who is the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. They do not understand. Why? Because they've chosen to believe a lie instead of believing the truth. What happens when you believe the truth? Your mind is flooded with light. That's why Paul says to the Ephesians, I pray that you would be enlightened with the truth, that your mind would be flooded with light. What is your mind flooded with today? Is it flooded with lies or is it flooded with light? Ask the Lord, Lord, flood my mind with light, not with, not with deceit, not with lies. Now when verse 5 it says, for we do not preach ourselves, we don't make it about ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord in ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. In verse 5, now he honors God. He's filled with honor for God. He's saying, I don't make it about myself. I'm not preaching myself. I'm not losing heart because it's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's not my church. It's not my ministry. It's, it's not my uh, resources. It's not what God, you know, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. And when you have a focus on knowing this is God's now, he doesn't lose heart because of that. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves here, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now what do we learn from that when it comes to honoring God? We don't make it about us, we make it about Jesus. Do you make it about yourself today, or do you make it about Jesus? You see, John the Baptist said it best when he said John, in John 3.30, he said, I must decrease, he must increase in my life. I must decrease and he must increase. What is, here, what is he doing here with the focus? He's putting the focus and all the attention on Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus Christ and not on ourselves. Why is it so important to do that? Because when you do that, you become a servant of other people for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he telling, he's telling us this. We become, in verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants. For whose sake? For Jesus' sake. What would happen if we started to live our life for Christ's sake? <laughs> Have you ever told someone, man, for Christ's 
sake already, would you just change? <laughs> but no, think about it. If you, you really thought in, if, with that mentality, no, for Christ's sake, for the sake of Jesus, I'm a servant of people now. Now, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I am a servant to other people. You see, that's what he's talking to us in verse 5. For the sake of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19, he tells us, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win the more. What's the position that he's placed himself in here, Paul? The position of a servant. Of a servant. In the midst of opposition, he still remains a servant. In the midst of, of battling with wanting to be discouraged, he still places himself in the position of a servant for the sake of Jesus. See, if we would have the mentality for the sake of Jesus, what would happen in our lives? How would we become more servants of people? He's saying, I am a servant, a bond servant here in verse 5. You know what a bond servant is? A bond servant means I'm enslaved now to serve people for the sake of Jesus Christ. I'm enslaved. I am committed. That's what a bond servant is. It's like a slave that voluntarily gives up his life to serve people. I am enslaved. I am a bond servant for people. And he goes on in verse 6. As he, he tells us whose bond servant he is. Verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. From death to life, from darkness to light, it is the same God that said, let there be light. It is a God that, that shined, commanded the same God in Genesis 1, 1 that said, Let there be light, who, who made light shine out into darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the same God that said, Let there be light. It's the same God now, who shines light into darkness, now he's saying. It's making light shine, light shine in our hearts. So it's making light shine in so that we can shine that light out. Do you see how that, that amazing picture that he's pointing, that he's giving us? To light shine in our hearts so that we can shine that very same light out. What is that light that's shining in our hearts? It's the knowledge and the glory of God. But how do you see the knowledge and the glory of God? The knowledge and the glory of God is expressed in the face of Jesus. And this is the way he says it in verse here 6. He said, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God? The glory of God is always seen in the face of Jesus. The glory of God is always seen in the face of Jesus. Jesus wanted you to see the glory of the Father, and that's why He came, so that He can meet every single one of our needs, and that is the glory of God, the face of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said Himself in John 17, Father, I desire that you, that they may also whom you gave me, that are, may, may be with me, that, I, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The glory of God is found in the face of Jesus. The glory of God is found in the face of Jesus. Where is the glory of God found? In the face of Jesus. And he's pointing himself, he's filled with honor for God. What is he filled with first? First, humility. Then he's filled with honesty. I don't try to trick anyone. I'm teaching the truth. And this is the truth. And the reason why I know the truth is because those that are filled with the, the blinded minds, the lies of the enemy are not accepting the truth. Even though I preach Jesus only. 
And even though I preach Jesus only, it is Jesus now who is the express glory of God. It is in the face of Jesus that we can see the glory of God. You want to see the glory of God in your life? Go to Jesus. That's where you see the glory of God. You want to see the glory of God for your family? Go to Jesus. That is the glory of God. And he ends here in verse 7 as we end today. He continues. We're going to end today in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now we have this vessel now or this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay. This is amazing, this verse. We can actually spend all day talking about this verse of jars of clay. Now at that time when they, they would use jars of clay, jars of clay would be something that's common. It wasn't something special. It wasn't a jar of gold. It was used for a common day-to-day, everyday use, a jar of clay. It was a pottery. It was used for water, for different things as an instrument and as a tool. And he said, we are just as common vessels in jars of clay. They would even use jars of clay to, to, to bring out trash and take it to one from one place to another. It was just a, an earthen vessel. It was, a, it was a jar of clay. And it tells us here in, in verse 7, but we have this treasure, the treasure of the glory of God, the treasure of Jesus. We have it where? In earthen vessels. We have it in just some common jars of clay. It's nothing that is extraordinary or it's nothing special. It's not about the jar of clay. It's about the treasure that's in that jar of clay. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now what is the treasure that he's talking about? The treasure is the light, the glory of God that is shining in our hearts. This treasure that we're holding, that you're holding, the word of God that you have, you have it in a jar of clay he compares it to. A jar of clay that's doing what? That is shining out the treasure of God. That is communicating now His character because it's in you today. You know what a jar of clay does? A jar of clay does this. It says, you know what? I am just a jar, a weak, fragile jar of clay. And in that jar of clay, there is a treasure inside that is shining out the glory of God. That is communicating the character of God. That is the jar of clay that is filled with the presence of God. We are like fragile, weak vessels. Filled with the treasure and the attention is on God. And what does he tell us? How does he finish here in verse 7? As as we read that verse. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Why did God choose jars of clay to put his treasure in? So that the excellence and the power would not be on the jar of clay, it would be on the treasure that lies inside that is the light of God. You see, Paul is saying it's not about the jar of clay, it's not about me. Notice, we're just like jars of clay. And God chose to deposit His treasure in something so common, so that the excellence of the power of God would not lie on the jar of clay, but it would lie on the power of God. You see how amazing that is right there? That we see that it is, has nothing to do with the jar of clay. We're just fragile jars of clay. We're like earthen vessels and earthen, very common vessels that the ancient people would use, right? But in it is there's a treasure that's communicating now the power that comes from God. You see, they would store so many things in jars of clay. And it was so evident here, he wanted to make it so evident that it's not about the jar of clay, <laughs> but it's about the treasure inside those jars of clay. See, that's how he never lost heart, Paul. Because he understood it wasn't about the jar of clay. It was about the treasure that was inside 
of that jar of clay. The power doesn't come from the jar. The power comes from the light of the gospel. There is a great treasure, he's saying, in a humble container. You think when somebody comes in and they bring you a container, guess what? And they bring you some food, right? And are you impressed with the container or you want to taste the food? You come and say, you know what, I want to taste the container. I can't wait for that container that you brought. And man, you're, you're so excited because of the container that they brought the food in. You don't care about the container. It's about what's inside the content that is brought. The container, the jars of clay, is only a tool to bring in that which really matters. It's so awesome because when we start to study even the Word of God, we start to study how... The Word of God was found and in, in historically how we found uh, the scriptures and the manuscripts and the, even the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? We know that it was found in hidden in jars of clay. If you study how the Dead Sea Scrolls were founded, they were excavated over 2,000 years ago as the Bible was even founded through manuscripts, through jars of clay hidden in a cave. And, and when people found the scrolls, it was like treasure enclosed in an earthen vessel. They put the, the scrolls and they hid them in those jars of clay. So that when we take them out, it can communicate the glory of God. Is your character communicating the glory of God? Because it's not about the vessel, it's about the treasure. It's not about the vessel, it's about the treasure. Right? We have like a treasure, he's saying, enclosed in earthen vessels where the glory of God is in our lives, in our earthly bodies. And we want to exalt the treasure. It's not about the jars of clay. Ask yourself today, have I made it about myself instead of about the Lord? But you know what they also would put in the jars of clay? I, I love this. You know what they also put in the jars of clay? They'd also depart in little, little jars like contents of perfume and aromas and, and something so special and beautiful. My wife has recently been getting into these aromas and these scents and these oils, right? And I walk in the house and it smells completely like the scent of this oil that she has just been turning on this little thing. It looks like a jar, but it's not a jar. And out of it comes an aroma and it fills the house with something that smells so nice and comforting, right? And it reminds me even as how they transported perfume in this day. How is it that the perfume was able to really come and really be used to minister to someone? The vessel, the jar of clay had to be broken and what was inside had to be spilled. The best jars of clay are the cracked jars of clay that are broken before the presence of God so that the presence and the glory of God would shine and be communicated before those around us. Can we choose today to be those jars of clay that's saying, Lord, I'm just a jar of clay. And Lord, I choose to be a jar of clay that's so ready to be broken so that others can know and I can communicate the character of God even in my life. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, Lord, because... Because we receive this new covenant, God. Because we receive mercy. We don't lose heart. I pray for those that are losing heart. Because they want to be the strength. We sometimes want to be the strength of the treasure. The power doesn't come from the jars of clay. The power comes from the glory of God. 
I pray not only that we would be jars of clay, Lord, earthen vessels, not heavenly vessels. I thank you, Lord, that you didn't use heavenly vessels to pour your treasure into because the heavenly vessels would just, you would think that, well, that's why exactly why your glory is shining through them because they're heavenly vessels. No, you use earthly vessels like us. And through those earthly vessels, common people, imperfect people, you have chosen, Lord, to give your glory, your grace, and your love. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. There's some of us here that need the Lord, that we want to be broken jars of clay.